It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Tonight on Piers Morgan on Censor, first the bet, now the backlash. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's wager with me on the Rwanda plan sparks a frenzy of headlines and an impassioned debate. Was he gambling with vulnerable people's lives or putting his money where his mouth is? Prince Harry lands in Britain after bombshell news that his father, the King, has cancer. But the Duke of Sussex, we're told, will not be meeting his brother, Prince William. Is Harry's visit an unwanted distraction? And teacher Warren Smith goes viral for calmly and critically educating a student on the difference between being offended and what is actually offensive. More than 40 million have watched that video. Who could be his first interview? Live from the News Building in London, this is Piers Morgan Uncensored. Good evening from London. Welcome to Piers Morgan Uncensored. It's the bet that rocked Britain. Two guys making a wager doesn't often become a global news event. But my challenge to the Prime Minister on his plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda triggered an enormous reaction and appears to have triggered an enormous number of people. Here's a reminder of what actually happened. I'll bet you £1,000 to a refugee charity you don't get anybody on those planes before the election. Will you take that bet? Well, I, well, I want to get the people on the planes, oh, right? Of course I want to get the people on the planes. £1,000. Right? right? I want to get the people on the plane. And, and you say you're scratching your head. Albania is an example of why it's working. We created a new returns agreement with Albania. Yeah. It meant that if people came here illegally, we could send them back. And you know what? They stopped coming. Rwanda's, and Rwanda will do the same I thing for us. I do not think it's going to work for you. OK, well, we'll have to that's agree my, to disagree. That's my grim prediction. But you don't have an alternative way to solve that problem, then? Uh, no, I'm not Prime Minister. Yet. And here's just a small sample of the fallout, which has vied with news of the King's health for headline coverage and even made it to the Houses of Parliament. How frustrating for you that yesterday our Prime Minister said that he was willing to risk £1,000 on the basis of a bet. And it was a charity bet, wasn't it? I don't have a problem with it at all, to be honest with you. I think two multi-millionaires having a bet amongst themselves. And it was absolutely appalling. I've never heard such garbage um, come out from a uh, politician in my life. Was it deeply distasteful, as Labour have called it, or would he have been criticised for not backing the bet, as one Conservative commentator has argued. Can you confirm for the House, Mr Deputy Speaker, that a £1,000 direct pecuniary personal interest is one which should be registered and declared by the House authorities? 
Well, Rishi Sunak's political rivals are feasting on the moment, as you'd expect. The Lib Dems called it shameful. The SNP said it's grotesque. And rather hysterically, I thought, reported the Prime Minister for breaching the ministerial code, as they put it. Labour says it proves he's out of touch. They also posted this ad saying, while your pockets are bare, Rishi's betting with a grand he has to spare. Not the greatest poetry I think I've read in a while. Uh, but first things first, they didn't actually use the right handshake there, Labour Party. They want to think about that. That's him thanking me at the end of the interview, not accepting the bet. And where I come from, Mr Prime Minister, you might try and wriggle off the hook, but a handshake's a sealed bet. Uh, secondly, it's worth noting that Rishi Sunak has now braved two extended, uncensored interviews with me while he's been Prime Minister. Sakir Starmer, who wants to be Prime Minister, has repeatedly told me to my face he'll come on the show and has uh, appeared precisely zero times. So when a lot of the Labour MPs hit social media today, led by Jess Phillips, saying, my God, if he can't even cope with Piers Morgan, what a hope has he got with Vladimir Putin? Well, your leader doesn't appear to be able to cope with me at all. Former Labour spin doctor Alistair Campbell, uh, you may remember him, he spun us into an illegal war that cost the deaths of over a million people, posted most of the audience at my book event tonight were unaware of the Sunak Rwanda bet. When I described the exchange, there were literally sharp intakes of breath and reactions of disgust in the audience. If it crossed Alistair's mind that that might have been the moment, they remembered what he did when he was in Downing Street with Tony Blair. So, a lot of reaction. Um, and I don't know how I feel about this, other than to say that when I see Carol Vorderman, an old friend of mine, used to work with me at the Daily Mirror, tweeting hysterically, resign Rishi Sunak about the bet. You're an utter disgrace to this country. And forgotten sitcom actor Robert Lindsay, he was good, don't get me wrong, loved him as Wolfie Smith, lamented, did dear anyone with an ounce of humanity, a PM and a TV presenter having a bet on desperate people's lives, and so on and so on and so on. I do think a lot of people may have lost the plot in the maelstrom of pearl clutching in the last 24 hours. And forgotten, actually, that I did start the process of this wager by saying the bet proceeds would go to a refugee charity. I was actually trying to flush out the Prime Minister's conviction and a policy that I believe has always been doomed to failure and is bad for this country. He was trying to underscore his genuine belief that it could work, and I guess you could say he was putting his money where his mouth is, and we all know he has plenty of money to do that with. But like I say, no one ends up with any money here other than a refugee charity. And what is almost certainly going to happen, I suspect, is that I will win this bet. Nobody will end up being sent to Rwanda on a plane, and a refugee charity will be £1,000 better off. You could argue that's quite a good win-win all round. Well, the Prime Minister himself was asked to clarify the wager this morning. I'm being totally honest, I'm not a betting person and I was taken totally by surprise in the middle of uh, that interview and the point I was trying to get was across... Was it a mistake to shake his hand? Well, no, it was, well, the point I was trying to get across, I said I was taken totally by surprise. Was it a mistake to take my hand? Well, I'm not Hannibal Lecter. Um, the best questions are always a surprise, even for Prime Ministers. It should be noted he has not officially withdrawn the bet and I wouldn't let him. A handshake's a handshake. Uh, former Tory leader William Hague, though, had some interesting tips on how he would have handled this. He said he'd have attacked me with his martial arts. What do you do there, William Hague? How do you do? You, do you shake his hand? Do you make the bet? Do you think that's all right, or do you do you avoid that landmine? 
It'd be a really nice to do a judo move on it, wouldn't it? <laughs> holding out his hand. Um, and, but, however, that's the sort of thing I can fantasize about today and couldn't have done when I was a party leader. Uh, so, um, uh, no, to bat the hand away. Fantasizing about grappling me in a judo hold. This is the man who wanted to be prime minister. Should be known as the same William Hague who once boasted of drinking 14 pints a day. Obviously a tough cookie. Uh, and Sam Coates over at Sky News gave this analysis. You know, the point about that exchange with Piers Morgan um, and, and, and actually, you know, listening to Rishi Sunak try not very well to defend it this morning is, like, he just gets dragged into stuff, you know. But you've got to deal with more difficult people than Piers Morgan. You've got to deal with Vladimir Putin. Who says that Putin is more difficult than me? What do you base that on? Shame on you, Sam Coates. I was going to mention James O'Brien over at LBC. He was ranting away about me, but he does it so often. And he's so insufferably irritating. I'm going to spare you, my own viewers, from having to even see his face. Now, at the heart of all this is a serious issue. I've said repeatedly I don't believe the Rwanda plan is either practical or affordable or, indeed, humane. I think the PM is finally making some progress on illegal immigration with the boats. He's got them down substantially, thanks to a deal with Albania. But this Rwanda plan, as I said to him to his face, is a cack-handed plan that is just never going to work. And the bet, Prime Minister, most definitely stands. Well, joining me now to discuss this is Talk TV contributor and lawyer Paul Arone Adrian, the author and journalist Paul Mason, and Talk TV international editor Isabel Oakshot. OK. Right, well, I've got Paul and Paula, and I know where you're both going to come at me from. Uh, Paul, look, I, I, I was surprised it blew up this big, if I'm honest with you, because really the point I was making was, it's for charity this bet, but are you going to put your money where your mouth is? And I can see the way it's, it's played out, obviously, very differently to how it felt in the room at the time. What, what was your view of this? Well, I'm a, like you, I'm against the Rwanda plan. I don't think it'll work. I think it's unfair. I think it's uh, probably illegal in, in international law and it costs a lot of money. But if I was in favour of it, I would try and present it to the public a in a little bit more sober way. I thought it trivialised it because it, it may be that Rishi Sunak doesn't know this, but there were some migrants put on a plane in June 2022, refugees, to go to Rwanda, stopped by the courts. They were dragged onto that plane and chained to the floor. And I, I accept that de deportations have to happen in a fair migration system. Some people have to be deported. But when we do that on our, all our behalves, we've got to maintain the idea to the rest of the world that we're humane and we care about those people, even if they fail well, to... Were you, Jim, you said you found it morally... I did. ...rebels or whatever you said. I, I, I said mean, it was morally vacuous. Right, and a lot of people said similar sentiments. I think there's a YouGov poll says 72% of Britain think it was unacceptable for Sunak to accept my bet. Uh, but I haven't seen much reference to the fact that proceeds are going to a refugee charity. Let, let, let people may, may have missed that. It was a newsbreaking right. interview. Uh, let's accept that. The, the point is, first, it's a grand... You know, I was in my local Tesco just now and, and watching, you know, young mums looking at whether or not they can afford what's on the shelves. A grand to such people sounds like a lot, even in North Allerton and Richmond, you know. Uh, I'm not sure how many Rishi's constituents would have found that very tasteful. But then... The, well, they, all know, they all know he's stinking rich. I called yeah, him stinking of rich course, but, last time I interviewed him. But the, but the issue then is... Let's not trivialise the fate of a lot of people. A lot of Tory MPs, not just Mr Sunak, often say we can't wait to, t to, to see the planes take off. When I hear them say that, I think, what about the people in the planes? Mm. They've got, you know, as a journalist, I've been 
to Morocco, interviewed people on wastelands, people from Niger, and said to them, look, when you get here, you're going to risk dying to get here. There'll be a lot of racism when you get here and you'll be poor. Why are you doing it? And they say, come to Niger. Uh, and, we'll, and you'll right. find out. I.e., the idea that the deterrent effect is going to stop them coming. Well, I don't think it'll be a deterrent effect. I mean, well, Paul, I'll bring you yeah. in here. I just don't think it is. I don't think it works on any level. They've already admitted the government pretty much that even if they do get it through Parliament and get these people onto planes, we're only talking about a couple of hundred people at vast expense, maybe three, four hundred million pounds to the British taxpayer. It makes no commercial economic sense whatsoever. But my biggest problem with it is I think we should be a country which can deal with illegal immigration properly, with a proper policy, and the far bigger problem at the moment of a soaring legal immigration issue, yeah. which is exploding our entire population. Um, but also we should be a country which can take asylum seekers who warrant coming in as asylum seekers. And if we send people to Rwanda, and even if they uh, fulfil the criteria for entry as a subject, we don't let them come back. What have we become as a country? Absolutely. And I think I just want to be able to answer your question in terms of you being surprised at the reaction to this bet. I'm disappointed mm. that you're surprised. Um, I, I, I'm not surprised. Mm. It was crass, it was crude. Um, you were playing with people's lives. No, I wasn't. Is. That's ridiculous. Um, and That's a ridiculous have, thing to say. People have died. I wasn't playing with I was actually to come to this I'm actually country. trying to stop. Those well, people's lives be, being played with, but you, but you played. No, a I, game. no, no. It what was I was doing, a crude What wager. I was doing, Paula, it was two wealthy what men. I'll play, what's the wealth got to do with it? Suggested that oh, let's just you know put our put our hands in our back pockets and pull out a thousand pounds to a um, refugee charity. And, uh, finish the sentence. But we lost the refugee charity. Well, you shouldn't me, use it. Let me let me you explain lose why it. we lost the refugee because charity. Because it seems to me because your solution Rishi is the refugee charity shouldn't get a thousand pounds. No, because Rishi has already spent. £240 million pounds mm. of the British taxpayers' this money, taxpayer on this, money on this failed event. Well, he didn't say, to be fair, mm. in the interview where the £1,000 was right, coming it from. It seemed to me, did you watch and, the interview? And, and did I, you I see did, the whole debate about Rwanda? I didn't... I, so I, the I, idea that I'm playing with people's lives when I was actively trying to stop the British Prime Minister from going through with a policy which I think is playing with people's lives... I find that offensive. Well, what's I can tell you. What's, what's happened is, Piers, is that you're a slick interrogator. And what you no, did, I'm a journalist. And what you did was you led I used uh, Rishi a tactic. Dow. I used you a tactic. You led Rishi onto that I asked him a question. And he was like... It was reminiscent of Bambi on ice skates, wasn't right. it? It <laughs> was just a car crash. Right. And how he can really contain himself today but is beyond way, me. He must I, be cringing. I did, so, yes, it I was did a joke. People, Maybe not on. to you, but clearly Let to Rishi. Let me get a word in. I did what people do many of his constituents up and down the country all the time, right? They have an argument, they reach a place where they're not agreeing, and they go, I'll bet you, you can't get this to work, right? I didn't mean it as any insult to people. I was trying to stop people being, in my view, mistreated by this country, right? Now, the surprise to me was only that the Prime Minister accepted the bet. Mm. Now, that may have been a misjudgment on his part. Mm. He was probably calculating in the moment you know what, if I don't, it looks like I don't believe in my policy. If you know, Damned if I do, damned if I don't. And maybe that was a sharp moment by me to flush that out, that hesitation by him. But I do think, I mean, Paul, I do think some of the reaction has been ridiculous. Well, I haven't seen all the reaction, but what I would say is I don't share your criticism of, of you, Piers. You know, mm. as a journalist, when one makes a newsmaking interview, you know, you want to make the headlines... Yeah. Um, you spent a long time with him. I watched the whole interview, yeah. a long time. And what was clear to me was that 
the Prime Minister was in many ways accepting your premises at every point in the argument. And that as a human being, let alone journalist, when you find someone doing that, you, you do start to wonder, should this guy be running the country? And let's see how far he'll go. I've done that in interviews mm. with people where I felt that, that really they're out of their depth. Mm. Now, I don't want to be unfair to the Prime Minister because any live interview with a senior journalist is a tough thing. But in the end, it, I just think, He's out of touch. And, and the out of touch, I have no problem with you offering him uh, to, to bet a grand for a refugee charity. But what, what I do have is the, the idea that he found that sort of, sort of funny enough to sort of think, oh, I can do this. Well, I think you, I think you flummoxed him, actually. I mean, let's be, to be fair, I think you flummoxed him in, in the moment. He didn't really know what to do. And people criticise and say what he should do. He's only been Prime he Minister have had a year. He should have asserted his authority. Of course. Because because the thing he, across every the Prime Minister will tell you, and I'm sure you've had conversations with him, that they are at their best the day after they lose their jobs, right? They get fully trained, probably experienced, and then they get fired. Let me bring in Isabel Oakshaw, who's been listening patiently to this. Isabel... Um, a lot of hysteria about what I thought was a fairly sharp piece of journalistic stuntery to elicit a genuinely fascinating response, which it did. Well, what a load of sanctimonious twaddle from both Paul and Paula. I mean, Paula hasn't even uh, watched the whole interview, so it's rather difficult to imagine how she can possibly be pronouncing on it. Uh, Paula said she was disappointed and... I too am disappointed, Piers, because I think you could have bet a whole lot more on that policy not working. Have you fallen on hard times or something? <laughs> I mean, I, honestly, I just came up with a figure in the moment. I had no idea what I was really going to come up with. I just thought it'd be well, interesting, look, interesting you, to test his afford, resolve. Interesting to see what he. I just thought it'd be interesting you to see how he responded. a lot more. Well, probably. Look, I don't think... Yeah, it's I mean, both of you could have afforded a lot more. And at the end of the day, which whatever the outcome of the bet, whether you're right and the policy doesn't work, which I happen to completely agree with you, I think it's a very safe bet, or he's right and he manages to get this policy off the ground, refugee charity is £1,000 better off. Mm. So I'm really struggling to see how anyone can genuinely criticise that. It's the first time I've ever heard either a successful TV presenter or a prime minister being criticised for being too generous in donating money to charity. Well, I said exactly what I thought. I thought, honestly, and they all deliberately left that bit out of it. So they're all ranting away about rich yeah. people spending... All this. Nobody mentioned in their critiques that this was actually a bet for charity. That's how I prefaced the whole thing. Um, what was interesting, I think, about the interview, Isabel, I know you've seen it all now, was... There were other things in that interview that I felt were much more newsworthy. One was where he basically called yes. Keir Starmer a terror sympathiser uh, over this uh, banned group. We had that NHS doctor on the show who's, who leads the UK arm of that now prescribed terror group in this country. And he basically called Starmer a terror sympathiser for trying to stop them becoming a prescribed group by acting for them. And the other thing I thought was uh, really newsworthy uh, was the, re the confirmation by the Prime Minister that one of his key five pledges to get NHS waiting lists down, which he actually coupled with sorting out the crisis in the A&E, uh, he failed on. Let's take a look. NHS waiting lists. We have well, not made enough progress. You failed on that pledge. Yes, Because you said NHS waiting lists will fall. But well, the waiting list is still that. nearly half a million yeah. more than it was at the start of last year. Yeah. So my mother is 79 and she had a heart attack three months ago. And she was taken to a local hospital, and 
she was seen when she got there, and then she was put on a trolley in A&E, in a corridor, for nearly seven hours. The heart monitor battery ran out. Nobody fixed it. At one stage, no nurse came for three or four hours. And she was also terrified, of course, having been told you've had a heart attack, that no one was putting her into the unit and actually trying to fix her. Now, once she got up there, the treatment she got was world-class. But, I, you know, I brought this one picture to show you. That's, you know, that's my mum. And when she really needed the NHS, yeah, eventually the NHS came through. But she could have died on that trolley. And I think that's shocking. Yeah, that is a shocking story. And I'm really glad that she's feeling better now and send her my best. And I'm glad she got the treatment that she needed. This was a Monday night, Prime Minister. This wasn't yeah. even a weekend. Yeah. It's not even a major city. This is Brighton. Yeah. And there were 40-odd people on trolleys in a corridor. Well, you know, I got an email today, which we're, we're trying to uh, corroborate, Isabel, but it was from somebody else at exactly the same hospital whose uh, mother died on a trolley in that A&E and was there for 24 hours. Well, and I, I think this is going on up Piers, and down the country. I really want to pick up on that. Yeah, I really want to pick up on that because if I were the Labour Party or any opposition party, I would play that particular clip of your interview on a loop and look at the Prime Minister's Thanks. reaction. Yeah. To me, this is the most insightful bit of the interview. There is something very, very wrong about the Prime Minister's reaction to your story. He just has... He shows no empathy. There is no form of shock in his reaction to your story. He's robotic about it. And that really, really jars with me. And, you know, I am so glad to hear that when your mum was finally taken up onto the ward, that she got the treatment mm. that you described. You said it was world-class. Um, but you, in a sense, you were lucky. Look, my mother recently died in an NHS hospital. I am sorry to say that she died in front of a lot of people, that none of us had any privacy. And in the seconds after she died, my sisters and I were taken into a store cupboard because there was nowhere private for us to go. So I wasn't planning on sharing that story, but the Prime Minister's reaction to your story has if you like, triggered me to do that because it was so lacking in any real empathy mm. for the many, many thousands of people tonight who are on hospital trolleys and are not getting the treatment that they deserve. The NHS is failing and he's admitted it and it's failed on his watch. Yeah, well, I'm very sorry about your mum. You and I have talked about that before and it's incredibly sad for you and I feel very fortunate that my mother was able to come through it. You know, she have a heart attack in your late 70s and then spend seven hours on a trolley thinking what is happening to me with the heart monitor regularly running out of batteries and no one seemed to notice it, it was scary Awful. um paul what, yeah. do you, what did you make of that part yeah. of the interview again i was looking at his face and thinking look prime minister doesn't get to meet a lot of ordinary people and when he does you know you, you were very measured with him but imagine you, we can all imagine a voter saying the same story right. what would happen in general is that the people behind him would just gently edge him away yes. and i think that what if he can learn anything it is listen to these ordinary sto stories i bet every single one of us including all your studio uh, staff could tell us the same story i've got stories of mm. 48 hours in a.n.e i've had uh, so many yeah, in the last but, two days but it's but so the nhs is failing it so happens that we've had one party in government for 14 years, but I'd say, you know, there is a long-term problem with the NHS. 
I actually think my hunch, I don't know about you and Isabel, my hunch is that people care a lot more about these stories of everyday hardship mm. uh, than they do about whether the Rwanda scheme deports 200... And they actually care, Paula, more about yeah. the reality of human stories than they do about the over-top-line statistics. You can hear 7.6 million people on a waiting list. Yes. You can hear A&E's out of control. When you actually have a loved one trapped in that nightmare of waiting for a lot to save their life or waiting to get into through A&E, it is terrifying. Absolutely. And I think there's two things here. The first is that you're right. You know, when he when he's approached by a member of the public, we saw it just a couple of weeks mm. ago, and he laughed in response to well, that I member of the that, public. Fair, he, was, he was caught of card. He didn't know what to do. But the, well, that the second, clip was cut unfairly, actually. Yeah, they then yeah. showed well, the longer the cut. And that also point, happens now. The second point that I wanted to make, though, was about the disconnect. It's the disconnect that we recognise in this story about your mother. And it's the same disconnect that we recognise in terms of the bed. Mm. We're talking about um, our Prime Minister who doesn't have the capacity to be sensitive enough to understand that when he's asked about making a bet on what is something that, for mm. many, is a life-or-death situation, be it about the NHS, be it about Rwanda, that he can just limply shake your hand um, on a policy that we know, or we are being told, aren't we, that he doesn't even agree with, but he's happy okay. to push through. Uh, look, it's I, I like Isabel, I wasn't going to say this, but I think I will just to be balanced about it, because the idea that he doesn't care, for example, about my mother and what happened to her and whatever facial reaction he showed at the time, I can tell you, he, he sent her a big bunch of flowers yesterday and then he followed up and called her without any recourse to me whatsoever. Uh, called her for 10 minutes and had a really lovely See, chat with the, her. The problem is there. You're you. Mm. You're yeah, of course, high profile. of course. And, 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 sure and, helps. If I'm, but if it's a nice doctor, thing to do. It, you know, <laughs> if only it sent my mum... A, a bunch of course, of course, he can't sell every, well, no, he can't no, exactly. everybody. And, and it, but my point being that it, I don't think he's a heartless man. Nurses right? and the I don't think he didn't care. Yeah. I don't think he's heartless. No. I think he does care. But I think that, I, you know, I, I give them a little bit of slap politicians for facial expressions when they're being jumped with stuff which they're not really sure what it's all about. And I can just say that my mother was very touched by both the flowers and the phone call and greatly appreciated what he said to her. Uh, and she certainly came away thinking this guy does care. Now, I completely accept... I'm a television presenter and it was a big interview, everyone's talking about it and not everyone gets that prime ministerial treatment. But he did do that and I've not had a prime minister do that to any of my family before. We're not voting uh, for the Conservative Party on the basis of whether Rishi has sent mm. your mum flowers. Of course. I'm um, not that, that, it to. That's not I'm what the vote is. No, listen, uh, we, we, we run out of time. To, but I, I'm simply trying to balance up the he doesn't care narrative, which I don't think is fair. He, he does care. I saw it. I spoke to him afterwards uh, for quite a while, actually, after the interview. He definitely cares, right? Um, but we'll have to What's see whether... What's he doing about it? Well, that, well that, uh, the question is, can, what any, is he doing can any leader right now fix the NHS is a much bigger question. I'm not sure... He's Dharma. Uh, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe, and he'll get, he may get a chance for the interview to prove it. To answer we've, got to, we've got to leave it there, guys. I'm sorry, we've run out of time. Uh, thank you. Uh, Paula, Paul and Isabel, thank you all very much indeed. I appreciate it. Uncensored next, Prince Harry returns to the UK to visit his father, the King, but he has no plans to meet his brother, Prince William. What does that mean? I think we know what it means. William would rather shoot himself back after the break. Back to our sensor. King Charles and Queen Camilla were seen publicly for the first time since the news of the King's cancer diagnosis yesterday. Uh, Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, flew in overnight from Los Angeles. Father and son had a brief meeting at Clarence House this morning, about 45 minutes uh, from all accounts. However, any hope this could be 
the beginning of a royal rapprochement seemed dashed this afternoon. Harry apparently had, we're told, has no plans to meet up with his brother, Prince William. So that feud continues unabated. Uh, is Harry's visit an unwanted distraction at a time of crisis, or was he damned if he came and damned if he didn't? Uh, my pack, the royal historian and author Tessa Dunlop, the royal biographer and expert Tom Bauer, author of Charles III, New King, New Court, Robert Harbour, number one best-selling book. Congratulations. Um, but first, let's talk to the Sunday Times' royal uh, Roya Nicka. Roya, um, the, the big developments it seemed to me today, well, obviously, Harry flying in, meeting up with his father at Clarence House, but only for about 40 minutes maximum before the king uh, went by helicopter with the queen up to Sandringham. Uh, and then this briefing that there was going to be no meeting planned between him and William. So I, I, my first question, really, do we know any more yet about what this cancer is? Are we likely to know what it is? It's sort of a mounting speculation, but is that going to lead to any clarity? I don't think, Piers, that's going to lead to clarity anytime soon. I think what they... What the, what the thinking on that probably is, is first of all, privacy for, yes, Charles has had a state and a very public figure, but also a man who's been diagnosed with cancer. But secondly, I think, you know, the king and, and the palace uh, team and, and the queen will want to see how Charles's treatment go before we think about going into any more um, detail about what cancer he actually has. In terms of, you know, that meeting today, I, I'm not sure we should read too much into the length of time. I mean, you know, Charles has had his treatment. He wanted to get back to Sandringham. I think the key thing is that Harry saw his father for the first time really in person, face-to-face, -face, chatting since the Queen's funeral, because they didn't speak at the coronation. Uh, we know that Harry came and left. He didn't go back to the palace or reception. Um, and, you know, it's been very strained and, you know, barely existing, that relationship in terms of face-to-face. -face. So I think it's a good thing that um, father and son have seen each other. But, I mean, William and Harry, absolutely no thawing of the ice whatsoever. I don't think that comes as any surprise to anyone, though, does it? I don't think anyone really who knows what's gone on there um, and the status quo thinks that Harry flying in to see his father is going to open up some huge reconciliation with his brother. Um, and I don't think Harry would have expected that. And I think, of course, you mentioned the fact that it was briefed out that William had no plans to see his brother. You know, that's sending a very strong message. But I don't think that comes as a huge surprise. I, I don't, you know... Everyone's sort of speculating about a, a thawing of a rift, but actually this is just a father and a son seeing each other after a cancer diagnosis. What is going to happen with the royal schedule for this year? Do we know any more yet about the length of time this treatment is likely to take? So, again, they've been quite unspecific about that and queries that we've made about, you know, well... Tour, overseas tours go ahead. We know there was supposed to be a, a tour to Canada and further afield and... The autumn, that huge trip to Commonwealth heads of government meeting in Samoa and there was expected to be a trip to Australia too. All of that, I think, will hang in the balance just so that Charles, until Charles knows how his treatment goes and how he feels after all of that. So at the moment, the only thing the, Buck the Buckingham Palace will confirm is that the king continues with all his state affairs. Right. Um, things like overseas visits and his engagements, we just don't know. Roya, thank you very much indeed for joining us again. I appreciate that. Uh, we'll have a short break and come back and debate all this with our superstar pack, including the number one best-selling author, Robert Harmon. How lucky are we to have him here? Even Tom's looking at him going, wow, I'd love a piece of that action. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to our sensor with me is the Royal Historian, author Tessa Dunnell, Royal Biographer and Expert Tom Bauer, and the Royal ex- uh, Expert and author of Charles III, New King, New Court, Robert Harvard. We're just comparing who's had more number ones, uh, <coughs> best-selling books. I came in at three. Uh, Rob, obviously, with his first one, I think, yeah? Uh, I've had one, one more that got to number one. So two, and then in came Bauer with six. Congratulations. <laughs> I couldn't be less happy for you. Um, <laughs> all right, let's, let's talk... Robert, look, you've written this amazing book. It is a, it's a magnificent book about the, the new king. You could never have predicted when you wrote this that within 17 months he would be facing yeah. such a serious challenge, not just to his, his reign, but to his life. No, I mean, he, he always seemed uh, um, someone who's very... Abstemious. I mean, over all the years I, I've been following and writing about him, even made a programme with him once. Uh, you know, here's someone who's very fit for his age, lives a very abstemious life, doesn't drink much, uh, is almost fastidious about Healthy. food. Healthy. Healthy to the lunch. point, doesn't even eat lunch. Actually right. thinks lunch is bad for you. Um, and, uh, and, and, and is very fit. And, and there can't be many people who have celebrated a 70th birthday with both parents still alive. So, you know... Do you have any inkling from your many great sources <clears throat> about what it, this cancer actually is? No, I'm, I'm, I'm not privy to, 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 to the sort of But cancer. it must be serious for them to be taking the action they're taking. I, it, all cancer, you know, is serious. I, I, I'm, what, I, what I am hearing is that he's proving to be not a very good patient and that he mm. is still expecting to have all the paperwork coming, all the, all the stuff, all the, the non public interaction stuff is continuing. Um, when I was doing the book, I mean, you know, you talk to people who, who have or do work for him, and he does, he keeps very late hours. Mm. I mean, he is, he is a hard worker. He has, you know, uh, Tom will know, Tom's written about, you know, some of his peccadilloes and, uh, and, and over the he's years. He's had a tough life. He's had, a, had an extraordinary life, mm. I mean, a unique life. But the one thing that, that, that runs through it is that, he, whether good times or bad, um, he has this capacity to, he likes 
mountains of paper. Uh, another, another thing that I think we've all been so busy over the years um, studying his interest in other faiths, you know, the, mm. the, the long-standing thing about him wanting to be a defender of faith, that I don't think we've paid much attention to his own faith. Right. And that actually is, is much deeper and stronger, I discovered anyway, than I was aware of. Uh, and, and, and I think that's something that's going to stand Probably in Probably never more said. important than it is right now. Right? Absolutely. Tessa, let's talk about uh, the inevitable. Harry's flown in. Uh, he had a 40-minute maximum meeting with his father. That might be it. We don't know. Maybe he flies back again. Um, no sign of any rapprochement with his brother. I mean, what do you make of this? Um, I think that Harry's been itching to build bridges with his father, really from the, the birthday call at the back end of last year. I think the Omid Scobie book scuppered any bridges being built before Christmas. And I think that Harry, as quick as he was out of the traps, <clears throat> is indicative of a son who wants to find a way back in, certainly with his father, against whom he's never really had the beef. The beef was always predominantly... Well, he did attack his father's his wife in his book. Yeah, for I mean, sure. I mean, it, wasn't, it wasn't pretty, and I'm pretty, sure... Pretty, as ugly as it gets. I mean, if one of my family did to me, they would be done. I mean, Tom, we've talked a lot about this, but what do you make of this, this grandiose gesture? I mean, on one level, you could say, well, it shows it must be a serious situation, because he didn't fly two weeks ago when Charles had his benign prostate uh, procedure, but he's flown straight in here. That does suggest to me it must be serious. But this rift with William looks pretty implacable. If you can't come together at a moment like this, when can you? Well, I, as I said last night to you, I was very suspicious about the dash. And I won't be surprised at all, as I hinted yesterday, if he flies back tonight or tomorrow. I think it was all just for show. I think that it was an impromptu way of getting attention. I think he's a very suspicious man. He's wrote his book for money. He's been very disloyal. And I'd be very surprised if he met Camilla when he met the father, when mm. he met the father. And I think the only person he might meet now would be uh, Beatrice or Eugenie, mm. but otherwise he'll go back. And I think that there's absolutely no hint of reconciliation. His wife is the most bitter, unreconciled woman there is. He'll be told that, in any case, there's no future for him. And I'm told that William's real rage is about what Harry wrote about his wife. He's right, but he's absolutely right. Yeah, he is. What he wrote was absolutely grotesque. Yeah. Only for money. Yeah. And, and he's been terrible about his father as well. I but mean, I don't think we, we should be too suspicious about a son wanting to have contact with his ageing, ill father. I think that is a, a very simple, familial transaction, whatever water's gone under the bridge. I think it's all too easy to cast aspersions, and one hopes that Charles is, is well, larger than The aspersions are cast that. because of the track record of Harry and his wife in the last four, he five years. He dashed off after the coronation. He was pretty... Um, um, but they haven't um, missed well, a chance to sell, to sell trash about their family. And Let's not only clear. that, he's, he briefed Omid Scobie for the second book, which was a disgraceful book. We discussed that at the time. He would have uh, got it in the neck if he hadn't come. I mean, yes, you said earlier, true. you know, damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. I think... Um, the, the, the jury stays out until we see how, uh, you know, this, this trip is over. Does he use it as an opportunity to grandstand or is what it really... What does the King really feel about this situation with Harry and also about the situation between his two sons? Uh, with Harry, its door is always open territory. It's, it's, he is forgiving. He is not one to, to feud on this. I think he'd much rather uh, take a... Mm. Uh, a, a bit of a hit and, 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 and have a, a much more normal relationship. When it comes to the, the brothers, I think it, it, he views it as, look, I, it, 
that's for William. I can't sort of step in here. He'd what love about to see Camilla, Camilla in all this? Because she's had to step up now, not just with the duties she's performing, may take on some of the kings, but also this is the love of her life who is facing this enormous personal health challenge. Sure, but as you know, Piers, Camilla's a, a broad-shouldered woman. She's a mother herself. Things get complicated. We know that Harry retreated into his bedroom. He well, I'm really talking to you actually about but, her, her feelings about what's going on mm. with Charles, uh, actually. Oh, right. Well, I think... What's interesting about Camilla is the way in which she's risen to the occasion. She's had these solo events. She looks impeccable. You doesn't even look like she's having this sort of personal storm going on in her private life. And I think that this will reframe her in many ways. And it will also, I think, help set the tone for Harry's re-entry. They all, those two, they're mature adults, Camilla and Charles. They want this. Well, to Tom, one thing's better. for sure, they will know better than anybody that you can be very disliked by the British public and bring things back. Yeah. They're both massively more popular, Charles and Camilla, than they were in the aftermath of Diana's death. But if you're assuming Harry wants to come back, well, yeah. I, I don't believe that for a moment. Yeah, that may not be I don't case. think he wants to. I don't think Meghan wouldn't dream of wanting to live in rainy London. She loves California, mm. and that's where their life is. And I think he just felt... I mean, you know, this is a man who a couple of weeks ago went to Jamaica, which he knew was a sensitive spot, just to stir up publicity, mm. just to earn some more money, and cause a lot of trouble for Britain mm. there. You know, that couple are just... They're intent on causing trouble. That is their meal ticket. Tom, I don't think that we should cast everything they do through the prism of Great Britain. Well, I actually, actually, we should judge, we should that, judge that, them that on Harry their actions. Aspects of and their actions have been extremely damaging to the monarchy, the royal family, and to this country. So exactly. if they change their behaviour, I'm prepared to change my view of them and the criticism. Robert, just, just, just finally, this is a big thing for the country to have to deal with this again, coming so soon after the Queen's death, Prince Philip's death... You've got Kate, who's just been in hospital. You know, Fergie, Duchess of York, has had two bouts of cancer now. It's, it's a tough time for people who, like me and you, love the royal family and the monarchy. It, it is a tough time, and it, it's, it's uh, you know, come at just as uh, the monarchy had sort of consolidated itself. I mean, he had enormous shoes to fill, King Charles, yeah. you know. I mean, and, and a lot of people predicted it was going to be an uphill challenge and he would stray off into politics, he would blunder here and there, there'd be a rise in republicanism. That hasn't been. I think the monarchy is, is, is in a very solid place. I think he's done a good job in less than a year and a half of consolidating it. And along comes this. But he's had plenty of other... Uh, shocks that yes, be beyond has. his control. I mean, when you think of, uh, you know, not just two rounds of The Crown, plus the Harry yeah. and Meghan's Netflix thing, plus there's always, Spare, some, there's always plus something, right? the saga of, of, of uh, Andrew, and, and not to mention, we haven't even gotten to republicanism in the other realms and all yeah. that. And yet, we up until last week, we weren't really thinking about the monarchy because it was doing what it always does. It was it had got boring, which is where it, it just, used to be. We listen, we've run, out, we've run out of time, but if you want to know more about the monarchy, read this. New King, New Court, Charles III, the inside story of the inside man, Robert Harvin. Great to see you. Congratulations. Thank Great you. to see you too. Thank you very much. One sense to the next, more than 40 million people watched a video this weekend of teacher Warren Smith delivering a masterclass in critical thinking to a student. He joins me after the break. Welcome back to our centre. A school teacher in Massachusetts, United States, who uses Harry Potter in his storytelling course, has gone viral for his response to a student questioning about J.K. Rowling's supposed transphobia. Warren Smith was asked, do you still like her work despite her bigoted opinions? What happened next was a very swift and forensic lesson 
and critical thinking. Let's define bigoted opinions. What opinions are bigoted? Live your best life. Do you find that transphobic? I'm just going with what a lot of other people have said. At the beginning of this conversation, you said, given the fact that J.K. Rowling is transphobic, how do you feel about Harry Potter? I feel like an idiot now. <laughs> Well, after the video was shared by Elon Musk, it's now been viewed over 40 million times on Musk's platform X, with tens of thousands of comments heaping praise on Warren for his masterclass in how to think for yourself. And Warren Smith joins me now uh, from Massachusetts. Uh, Warren, well, first of all, congratulations on having one of the biggest viral uh, <laughs> things that I've watched all year. Secondly, are you surprised? Um, because it's, it's really captured, I think, a mood of people desperate to see teachers behaving this way, where you didn't take a position. You simply laid everything out and let the student reach their own conclusion. Yeah, I am absolutely surprised by this completely. I never expected this at all. This came out accidentally. Just We have interactions like this on a daily basis. This one just happened to be captured on camera. Um, we were conducting a, a, a broadcast at school. I teach multimedia and I teach students how to work with camera and how to be on camera and the student was getting cold feet to do the newscast and so I said I'll show you it's not difficult we'll do a little warm-up and here I'll just sit here ask me whatever you want it's just a conversation what's something interesting that we could talk about you know what's on your mind and that's the question that came out and you saw the rest unfold it was really fascinating to watch the student and credit to the student who was prepared to listen to you. I think because of the, the non-hostile environment you immediately created, uh, was able to go on a kind of journey of exploration. Now, I've been crying out for uh, schools and universities to, to follow this path where students can actually debate these things in a good environment, hear other sides to an argument and reach maybe a better conclusion than the echo chambers that fly around fueled by social media. And it was great at the end that he sort of realised in the end there was nothing really as offensive as he'd presumed from the kind of toxic atmosphere around J.K. Rowling. I think that's why the video resonated, was that you see in real time a transformation, a journey with a beginning, a middle and an end. And he does come to a realization, and the realization is larger than J.K. Rowling. This is about more than J.K. Rowling. It's the realization that he is his prior assumptions. He was going off of, well, I've heard that this is true. So many people have told me that this mm. is true. And when you experience that for yourself and it crumbles, then you have to question logically what else am I assuming to be true yes. that perhaps might not be? And that changes the way you view the world. Yeah, com completely. I mean, it's a great reaction uh, to you. A guy called Vincent Lindeboom said, let's build an AI version of this teacher, duplicate him as many times needed, and have everyone learn and understand how to think, not what to think. And a guy called Lance said, interesting, I don't see him dressing with multicolored garments or weird hair, no piercings or visible tattoos, looks in relatively decent shape, in control of the classroom and discussion. Is this what the left calls toxic masculinity? Because we need more of it if it is. <laughs> That's such a coincidence that you brought up that quote. That's the quote that actually stuck out to me the most because he said reasonably in shape. And I thought, reasonably in shape? <laughs> in, what, re in reason to what? Perhaps we'll provide some... Uh, Critical thinking on that. <laughs> well, trust me, compared to me, you look yes. in uh, Olympian shape. Um, what's your message to, <laughs> to other educators around the world who maybe have been heading to a bad place where they've been almost teaching dogma 
um, fueled again by maybe what X is saying or what Instagram or TikTok is saying? What do you say to them? Do not be afraid to allow these conversations to occur because these students have the ability to do what you saw in that video and to reason their way through these things and to learn new ways to advance through life, but they will not be able to do so if not given the opportunity. Sometimes it just takes the right questions, just a little bit of prompting and leading by example. It's pivotal. Allow them to happen. Don't live out of fear. Not dissimilar, actually, to the art of parenting, I can tell you. I believe you. I don't have kids at the moment. Yeah, I've got four you. of them, and I can tell you the same strategy actually works. If you just shout at kids and bark at them and tell them what they should be thinking and doing, I think you end up with you know kids who are quite damaged. If you allow them the freedom and the space to reach their own decisions and conclusions and thought processes, everybody wins. Um, and talking of everyone winning or not winning, I see that you agree with me that Barbie shouldn't have been nominated for a Best Picture Oscar. That just, once again, shows you have uh, absolutely impeccable taste, Warren. <laughs> well, I, I admire what they were able to do. It was extremely creative being able to do something like that with a movie about a doll, Barbie. But the question is, what lens are we examining? What does an Oscar mean? What's the lens that we're looking at this through? And I do think that it comes down to the technical, artistic prowess that intangible, elusive thing that cannot be replicated. We've given enough money, given a large enough budget, you can go build a big Barbie house on a back lot, but something like Braveheart, mm. Titanic, there's certain, it's much difficult, much more difficult to replicate. Yeah, completely. Um, finally, you specialise in Hogwarts, Harry Potter. I, my oldest son is absolutely addicted to them. He can recite all the movies from the audio books, blah, 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 blah. I've never watched any of it, not my thing at all, but we've got 40 seconds. What is the best life advice you can give me from all your Harry Potter studies which will enhance my life? Voluntarily accept the unknown and enter the unknown beneath the surface, perhaps it's the Chamber of Secrets, beneath the, the surface of Hogwarts to face the serpent and save Ginny, the thing that will, serve, that will turn you to stone when you see it out of fear, perhaps. You've got to face it and you can't be forced to do it. You have to do it voluntarily. That's what's going to make all the difference. Wow. Warren, you've almost, you've almost converted me. Almost. Uh, Warren Smith, great to talk to you. Keep up the great work. We need more teachers you like you. Much. And it's a privilege to have you on the yes, show. Sir, thank you. you can watch uh, Warren's full video on X. Go look it out. It's great. That's it from me. Whatever you're up to, keep it uncensored. And keep it normal, like Warren Smith and his students. Good night. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ 
the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 